Welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. The following message was previously recorded at the Garden Church in downtown Long Beach, California. In uh, previous years, we have, we have done uh, uh, kind of an Advent theme, and of course we're, we're shifting off that a little bit, but I... As I came in this morning and, and in worship particularly, um, wanted to spend just a couple seconds with that um, because I think that that Advent is an important season for us uh, as, a, as a church community, but particularly this morning for some of you as individuals. So would you mind just um, kind of putting yourself in a posture? Uh, uh, you can bow your heads. You can put your hands out. Whatever would be, would be helpful just to focus your thinking on the, on the voice and the work of the Holy Spirit. Advent um, marks a turn of the year. It's the first season of the church calendar. Uh, and I think it's wonderful how Thanksgiving juxtaposes. Thanksgiving is a season of looking back, of saying thank you, of recognizing the Lord's brought us to this place. He has done great things for us. But... Advent is a season of turning forward, of looking into the darkness of an uncertain future. And knowing that the same God who brought us to Thanksgiving is the same God who will lead us into the future. And so we sit with open hands and open hearts. Full hearts, full of thanksgiving for what God has done. But also with anticipation, with hope with expectancy for what he will do. But not crippling the future with our expectations of what it must be. Willing to set it aside. And so, our Lord, I just, I just pray for my brothers and sisters as we just take a minute and turn our hearts again towards the new. As uncomfortable and as um, frightening and as difficult as the new might be for some of us, we don't want to be stuck in the comfort of yesterday. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would um, visit us in our longing without definition. We just want to say yes, Lord, to whatever it is that you bring. Not limiting you to what we want, but opening our hands and our hearts, our very lives, to what new you might do in us and through us as a church, as individuals, as families. So, oh Lord, I pray for this first Sunday of Advent. With that old Christmas carol, O come, O come, Emmanuel. In Jesus we pray, amen. Amen. Um, the series over the last three weeks has been talking about uh, money. Previous to that, we spent eight or nine weeks on sexuality. Beginning next week... Uh, we're going to start the Gospel of Luke, which is an exploration of power. So money, sex, and power. Uh, and we'll be, we'll be spending some time thinking through a lot of the things that we'll address today, because Luke has a real heart for the poor, 
and for the wealthy. Uh, so we're going to be talking about that as it, as it un, un, unfolds. Um, we, today, I just want to kind of have a conversation with you on this, um, on this topic of, of managing wealth in Jesus' name. What does it look like? Um, to, to do this, uh, we're doing the Financial Peace University coming up here in, in, in um, January. Some of you may have seen the controversy that erupted on the, on the uh, blogosphere this week uh, with Dave Ramsey's uh, post on his, his blog uh, from, an altern- from another source. that Basically, the title of the article was 30 or 20 things, something like that, that wealthy people do that poor people don't. And it got twisted. It got tweaked, in my view. Uh, I think Ramsey should have been smart enough to know that nuance is not um, the, 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 the mark of the blogosphere. We don't do nuance very well. So to sit with and think about things at a deeper level is not something we, we tend to do very well. We think yelling at each other from behind our snow forts is debate. Um, it, it actually isn't. Um, on the other hand, um, his defense, I think, was reasoned and sound and, and appropriate. Because the truth is, people on both sides of the discussion, you may not have even seen it, uh, in which case don't bother. Uh, but um, I, I think it's important for us, having spent the last few weeks talking about financial resources and giving and so on, to think about what happens when we st- pay attention overall when we pay attention to God's plans for managing resources. What happens? There's a sociological phenomenon that missiologists have noticed for the last 150 years that they have labeled, uh, Donald Winter labeled it, redemption and lift. He says he has observed in culture after culture, whenever the gospel comes into a new community, it is not long within a generation that the socioeconomic status of that community has lifted by a measurable amount. And it's clear that parts of the reasons for that are that the gospel calls us to a new way of life that is less about partying, less about drunkenness, less about licentiousness, more about word keeping, more about promise keeping, more about faithfulness. And when, when, we, when we trend in that direction, it is not uncommon then to experience the benefits of that kind of trajectory, the, the lift socioeconomically. At the same time, we need to recognize that poverty is an extremely complicated and complex matter. It is not simply a matter of laziness. It is not simply a matter of victimization. It is not simply a matter of uh, uh, irresponsibility. In fact, we ought probably better than anybody else to know that there is such a thing as systemic evil in our world in which financial resources are used to oppress the poorest of the poor so that the richest of the rich might get richer yet. The people who are born into poverty have little or no chance in the majority cultures of the world of arising out of that, uh, out of that uh, poverty-stricken condition. They just simply have no... They can't go to school because they haven't clothes to wear to go to school. Because they haven't food to eat at the lunch break. Because they have no resource to buy supplies. 
This is, this is not a choice that they have made. This is the reality into which they have been born. We don't need to go to Africa or Asia or other parts of the world to see this. We can see it in right here in downtown Long Beach. We have homeless children in our communities. And I have friends who teach in the local public school systems around this area. And the challenge for them is kids who live in motels, who are the children of migrant farmers, who are the kids who live sometimes seven or eight or nine people in a two-bedroom motel room, have faced challenges with ABCs and one, twos, and threes that kids who have been born into relative affluence. Relative affluence means one family in an apartment. Not three-car garage, white picket fence. That's, that's beyond the imagination of kids who are born homeless. And that is an increasing population in our culture as the rich get richer. Friends, it's not the, the 1%. It's the 0.1% that command the wealth of, in many instances, greater than uh, many third world countries. There, there are persons who have personal wealth greater than many nations on earth. I'm not blaming them, nor am I shaming them. I'm just saying that poverty is a whole lot more difficult to talk about than throwing darts in the blogosphere. It's a huge issue. So the question for me, as I come, come at this, 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 is, this, is, this, is, this is a challenge for us, I think, uh, as, as, a, as a community. We have, we have kids who, 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 who go to this school who have not, for, for all intents and purposes, because of the ways that the city is bifurcated, crossed Broadway to overlook the ocean. It's not safe for them to go there. This is their neighborhood. This is where they feel comfortable and safe. They won't cross 4th Street. You with me? And for those of us who blithely drive in and out, we have no awareness of the reality that surrounds us. So that's one, one, one matter. I do want, but I, so I want to say to you that we, we need to think systematically about that and pray systematically about that. But what happens when many of us in this congregation decide to manage our financial resources the ways that God suggests is probably the best one? And it's not rocket science. The, the, here's, write this down. Spend less than you make. <laughs> the average American lives on 102% of their income every month. Just that one thing will be transformative. It will get you on the, on, on, on the other side. Do you see? So here's the question. Uh, what does God say about this stuff? Um, and, and, and so I'm going to snapshot this. I'm going to try and move fairly quickly because there's way more stuff here than we can cover. But in, in, in general, in the Old Testament, I'm going to look at it both Old and New Testament. Wealth is seen as a sign of God's blessings on the good choices and life of those in covenant relationship with him. You see a classic example here in Psalm 112. So Alyssa, let's go ahead with that one. Praise the Lord. 
How joyful are those who fear the Lord and delight in obeying his commands. Their children will be successful everywhere. An entire generation of godly people will be blessed. They themselves will be wealthy. Their good deeds will last forever. Light shines in the darkness for the godly. They are generous, compassionate, and righteous. Good comes to those who lend money generously, who conduct their business fairly. Such people will not be overcome by evil. Those who are righteous will long be remembered. They do not fear bad news. They confidently trust the Lord to care for them. They are confident and fearless and can face their foes triumphantly. They share freely. They give generously to those in need. Their good deeds will be remembered forever. They will have influence and honor. The wicked will see this and be infuriated. They will grind their teeth in anger. They will slink away their hopes thwarted. The wicked here, by the way, aren't bad people. It's a technical term in Psalms. You see it throughout the Old Testament. The wicked are those who are outside of covenant, who don't have an alignment of heart with God. And, and, and I think if you've done any reading in the Old Testament at all, this is a representative psalm. If you align yourself with God, if you're in covenant relationship with God, you ought to expect over time good things to, have, to, to, to occur. That's what you ought to expect. And please notice that the sign of blessing is not prosperity, it's generosity. The sign of blessing is confidence. The sign of blessing is not having to look over your shoulder every ten minutes to make sure something isn't coming up on you. It's a sense of confidence. So in the Old Testament, this idea of God's blessing following on, uh, on confidence uh, and how people use wealth reflects that understanding. If you look at Proverbs 13:4, for example, it says, Lazy people want much but get little. Those who work hard will prosper. Now, we can argue about that. But in general terms, proverbial wisdom is simply a description of how people have observed life to work. Is that generally what we observe? I think generally so. Now, is it possible for people to work really, really hard and still not prosper? Yes. It really is. And there's Proverbs for that, too, because the Bible is not unilateral on this. It is very aware that systems conspire against poor people. So we want to look at that as well. Here's the other thing, however. God cares very much how you acquire wealth. How you acquire wealth. So look at what it says here in in, uh, Psalm 62. Don't make your living by extortion. Don't put your hope in stealing. And if your wealth increases, don't make it the center of your life. That's a real balanced view, right? Paul, when he writes to the church at Ephesus, says that holiness is marked by this. If you used to make your living by stealing, don't steal anymore. Redemption and lift. Get a job. Work with your hands. First uh, Thessalonians, uh, it's it's a four uh, eleven says, make it your ambition. Listen to this line. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, to work with your hands, and make a contribution. It reminds me of that old commercial a few years ago. Remember where the guy, the kids stand up in a business suit, little kids, right? It's my ambition, my dream to be an accountant. Right? Or my ambition, my dream to be uh, and fill in, fill in the gap. Kids don't think that way. Paul says we need to be thinking that way. 
by far the majority of us will be a transformative presence in a cubicle than we will on a mountaintop leading thousands. Salt is not about anything other than penetration and exposure. We're present where we are. So don't make your living in a way that shames the God who has blessed you in this. Generosity is always of life and resources is always the point. So look at this in Proverbs chapter 11. The godly can look forward to a reward while the wicked can only expect judgment. Please remember how we're thinking of those words. Okay. Uh, There are many, many wicked people who are good people. It's a technical term. Those outside of covenant. Give freely then and become more wealthy. Be stingy and lose everything. Because it's the generous who will prosper. Those who refresh others will themselves... uh, There's supposed to be something else in there. What does it say? Alyssa, I gave her this so late last night that... um, Excuse me, pardon me. No, that's all it says. Anyway, oh, will themselves be refreshed? There's a line missing at the bottom. So those who refresh others will themselves be refreshed. So with this, again, the idea of of generosity of life and resources is the point. And, And please notice, built into the system is care for the poor. So, for example, the the rules in the Old Testament governing harvest says, leave the corners of the fields Standing so that the poor can come in and harvest for themselves and care for themselves. So built in, please notice this, this is really important in all of our debates over, over health care and, and socialize this and that and the other thing. Somebody has to care for the poor who will be with us always. Somebody has to do that. Who is going to do that? It's not my fault that they're that way. No. It's not your fault that you're rich either, nor is it fully your responsibility that you are. So built into the systems of prosperity are the systems of care for the poor. Let me say that again. I am a Canadian. I am not Republican or Democrat. They want my money, but they won't let me vote. That said... How you all doing? Everybody okay? (laughs) Go back home! (laughs) Anyway, um, so having said that, built into the systems of prosperity are the systems of care for the poor. This is the beauty of of, of, of the understanding here. So how we care for the poor is the measure of a nation's greatness more than almost anything else. How we care for the least among us, the weakest among us, the disenfranchised, those who have no voice. How do we give voice to them? That's the mark of a nation's greatness. So built into the systems of prosperity are the systems of care for the poor. And we need to kind of keep that in mind as we think through this. On the other hand, please notice, um, the observed realities help us to get here. The godly can look forward to... to oh, no, let's go on to the next one. Sorry. Uh, Proverbs 13. Yeah. Good people leave an inheritance to their grandchildren. By the way, that's how a lot of folks who are wealthy today became wealthy. It's not because they worked hard. It's because somebody else did. That means, by the way, that neither those who worked hard nor those who inherited the work of other people can look down their noses at people who inherited poverty, not wealth. 
So, uh, but to the sinners, wealth passes uh, to the godly. A poor person's farm, however, may produce much food, but injustice sweeps it all away. Does that happen? More often than you would think. More often than you would think. And again, this is the same book that talks about uh, what it is that we're, we're, we're dealing with here. So these observed realities, inheritance comes in, injustice comes in. Here's another one, Proverbs 13, 7 and 8. Some who are poor pretend to be rich. Others who are rich pretend to be poor. The rich can pay a ransom for their lives, but the poor aren't even threatened. You figure what he's doing there? Wealth from get-rich-quick schemes quickly disappears. Wealth from hard work grows over time. Just practical realities of wisdom from the Old Testament. Ecclesiastes sums up. What I'm trying to get here, just in a short snapshot of a time, is a kind of a, of a, of a, of a portrait from the Old Testament. Uh, rather than a, a, a deep systematic treatment for which we don't have time. Look at Ecclesiastes 5, verses 8 through 19, selections. Don't be surprised then if you see a poor person being oppressed by the powerful and if justice is being miscarried throughout the land. Every official is under orders from higher up and matters of justice get lost in red tape and bureaucracy. Those who love money will never have enough. How meaningless to think that wealth brings happiness. The more you have, the more people come to help you spend it. So, what good is wealth except perhaps to watch it slip through your fingers? People who work hard sleep well, whether they eat little or much. But the rich seldom get a good night's sleep. There is another serious problem I've seen under the sun. Hoarding riches harms the saver. Hoarding is different than saving. Money is put into risky investments that turn sour and everything is lost. In the end, there's nothing to last, left to pass on to one's children. We all come to the end of our lives as naked and empty-handed as the day we were born. We can't take our riches with us. Even so, I've noticed one thing, at least that is good. It is good for people to eat and drink and enjoy their work under the sun during the short life God has given them and to accept their lot in life. It's a good thing to receive wealth from God and the good health to enjoy it, to enjoy your work and accept your lot in life. This is a gift from God. So this language here uh, pushes us to um, an, an awareness of, of acceptance. Yeah? Uh, an awareness that... Some of us are, 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 are wealthy because of dumb luck. And not even ours. We were just born at the right time, at the right place, to the right families. Now we are responsible for what has come into our hands. And some of us struggle and probably will struggle financially for most of our lives. No matter how disciplined we are, we will never likely be able to rise above a minimal level. For various reasons, not all of which are within our control. So, here's what Proverbs says. Oh God, I beg two favors from you before I die. First, help me never to tell a lie. And second, give me neither poverty nor riches. Give me just enough to satisfy my needs. 
For if I grow rich, I may deny you and say, who is the Lord? And if I'm too poor, I may steal and insult God's holy name. So this is the... This is, the, this is why, by the way, Jesus is later on going to say how hard it is for a rich man to enter into the kingdom. Why? Because he doesn't think he needs the kingdom. So as we finish out the Old Testament, we, we, need to, we, we need to kind of, you see the broad picture. Now Jesus builds on this and he warns more than any of his contemporaries, by the way, warns about the power of money. Remember the story of the rich young ruler, the guys come and, and what can I do to inherit eternal life? Which, by the way, signals how he got his money in the first place. How did I become a rich young man? I inherited. That's how I get everything of value. How do I inherit the eternal life? How do I make sure that it comes to me? And Jesus looks at him over time and says to him, well, here's the, here's the, I see what the problem is. You've got heart, you've got a, you've got a blockage for the receiving of eternal life. If you will just let go of what has gotten a hold of you, if you will release your grip on what has gripped your heart, if you will sell everything you've got, give it to the poor, and then come and follow me, then what you long for most will be yours. As it turns out, that's not what he longed for most. And Jesus watched him walk away with a heart condition. So in the middle of this, what is Jesus saying to us? And then he says this, how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom. It's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle. Now here's the truth, friends. A camel can go through the eye of a needle, but it will not look like a camel when it has done so. All he's saying here in this hyperbolic emphasis is it, it will cost you everything to enter the kingdom of the heavens. And if you're not willing to release what's in your hands, you have no capacity to receive. All right. Please notice, Jesus didn't say, sell everything you've got and give it to the poor to everybody who wanted to come and follow him. He said it to that guy. Why? Because that guy had a heart condition. Not everybody else did. So, uh, and then he talks about, he has parables about uh, rich men who gain their, uh, the whole world but lose their own soul. That doesn't seem like a good transaction to Jesus. He also reminds us that the poor will always be with us. This, by the way, in a condition in which somebody was taking up an offering. Remember? Woman came, gave Jesus an extravagant gift, just poured out an extravagant gift of worship. And Judas, John says he was the keeper of the treasury, said, what a waste. This, this could have been sold and the money given to the poor. And John says he didn't say this because he cared about the poor. But because when the money came to him, he would have had access to it. And Jesus says, the poor you have with you always. In other words, Judas, you can give to the poor any time you feel like it, which apparently is never. Jesus isn't going to push back against extravagant, wasteful worship. But he does want to remind us that there are people who are in the kingdom and poor so that those who have resources in the kingdom have somebody to bless with their generosity. Both parts of the body are gifts. Those who have and those 
who don't. He does not say, bring things to equal. He says there are people in the kingdom who stand hearts and hands open so that those of you who have resources have capacity to bless them. Who are humble enough to receive and who are humbled enough to give without demand, without expectation, without control, without manipulation, without looking down your nose at those who receive and without limiting your generosity because you don't think they're going to spend it on the right kinds of things. Who do you think you are? Do you see? Aren't you glad we're not going to talk about money next week? Okay. Um, James, Jesus' brother, later on, is furious with his church because of the ways they show deference to the wealthy. Come, sit here. Excuse me, you poor person, you sit over here on the floor. You three-piece suit, you... James says, how do you think that guy got his money? Wasn't it by oppressing the poor man whom you have just displaced? He's, he's livid with a church that doesn't understand that money does not mean the person who has it is more valuable than the person who doesn't have it. And if we don't get that right, this conversation isn't about money. It's not about wealth. It's about misunderstood values. The other side of this, though, that I I, want to point out is that the ministry of Jesus was made possible by sponsors. Many women contributed financially to the... You look at it in Luke chapter, I think it's 7. Paul's ministry was made possible by the generosity of sponsors. Do you realize that we have two books in the New Testament at least that somebody paid for? Guy name was Theophilus. He was Luke's sponsor. They are Luke and Acts are dedicated to the sponsorship of Theophilus. Aren't you glad there's wealthy people who provide an upper room in which Jesus and his disciples can have the Last Supper? Aren't you glad there are wealthy people whose estates are large enough to host a new church plant in Colossae and in Ephesus and in Philippi? Aren't you glad there was a wealthy woman who was a prosperous woman in Philippi who invited Paul and brought her women friends who were likewise merchants in the city and their approval of the ministry of Paul made way for the spread of the gospel into Europe. Aren't you glad there's a Priscilla and Aquila who run an international tent-making business with headquarters in Rome, Antioch, and Jerusalem, for whom Paul can work when he's in Thessalonica? These are wealthy people who blessed the ministries of Paul and the spread of the church in ways that poorer people could not have done so. They aren't mentioned because they're wealthy. They're mentioned because they took the gifts that had been given them and used them wisely and well in the kingdom. 
Just, just see again, the tension, the balance there is so critical for us. Money is never the problem. If you look throughout the Old Testament, look throughout the New Testament, look throughout church history, you see people of, 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 of means, people of wealth, who have blessed us with art and architecture and music and poetry that have lifted our souls. Thank God for people who loved Jesus enough to pay somebody to write some music, to pay somebody to paint the ceiling of the Sistine, to pay somebody to, to, to paint powerful and beautiful works of art. How else would that have happened? The artists weren't wealthy enough to do it. They were poor and received the largesse of the wealthy. Why are we talking about this? I'm talking about this because as I've prayed for our congregation, I am really convinced there are some of you who over the course of your lifetime will have capacity to make enormous sums of money. I, I, I just know that. I know it in, in my discernment. I know it in my prayers. So I want to talk very briefly and quickly about what the strategy for wealth is regardless of how much money you make. First one, very clear, just work hard. Work is not a result of the fall, Genesis 3. It's a gift of creation, Genesis 1 and 2. The very first thing God did after creating Adam was give him a job to do. Take care of the garden. Check it out, read it for yourself. Heaven will not be about resting. It will be about working from rest. Dispense from your mind the idea that you will be floating along on beds of ease playing harps. <laughs> Do you really think that the new heavens and the new earth will not need people who are workers? Work is a gift. But then steward the gifts of your life. Um, part of this, by the way, is going to require you to do the hard work of making a budget. Just doing that all by itself with no other action will save you somewhere in the vicinity of 20% a month. I have this, by the way, from a friend of mine who is an Orange County uh, Board of Supervisors named John Morlock. He was our accountant before he went into the Orange County Treasurer's Office. And he said time after time after time as a certified financial planner, as soon as he put people on a budget, they recognized real income increase of 20%. Why? Because most of us have no idea where our money's going. It's just gone. And simply determining not where it went, but where it's going to go, generates all by itself without anything else happening. A perceived increase of 20%. Anybody use another 20% a month? Get a, get a spreadsheet for crying out loud. <laughs> all right? It takes, by the way, about three years for a budget to become really helpful, so don't give up. Financial peace will really help you with that. Second, avoid debt. Avoid debt like the plague. There is some good debt, not much of it. Credit card debt is not good debt. If you can make payments, you can save. What's the difference? If you pay, make payments, you're paying somewhere in the vicinity of 15 to 30% more than what you actually Anything you buy on sale with a credit card and don't pay off is not on sale anymore. <laughs> Just saying. 
Right? And this, by the way, includes things that will be gone by the time the bill comes, namely food. We won't go into that. Um, so delayed gratification is the secret. Can you say no to yourself long enough to build up enough to pay for it? If you can't, then there's a very good chance that you will not live long enough to enjoy whatever it is that you've bought. Practice simplicity. What are the rules by which you determine I'm going to buy or not buy? What are you going to give away to make room for what you bring in? What does every new purchase you make cost you? A few years ago, oh, I don't have time for this. Oh, I'm going to tell it anyway. A few years ago, when the boys were little, we, we, we looked at a uh, swing set in the backyard. Swing set in the backyard. We're going to buy them when my two, two, two oldest sons were, were little. And, and, and so we're going to buy this thing and, and, and set it up in the backyard. And we're going to swings and a little slide and kind of a twirly monkey bar thing and, and stuff like that. And, 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 and then I, I'm a fine print guy. I'm a, a read the instructions before you unpack the box guy. So I'm on checking all of this stuff out. And on the fine print in the bottom, it says the warranty will be voided. If you don't uh, tighten the screws every week. There were 238 screws that I needed to go around every week and tighten. That was an hour out of my life every week for the rest of my life. So we didn't buy the swing set. My boys, anybody have, have kids that play with the things that the presents are in rather than the presents themselves, boxes and whatnot? So anyway, they didn't miss it because they didn't get it. Um, so, and they're coming out of therapy next week, so it'll be fine. So another strategy in, in, in practicing simplicity, learn the discipline of enough. It is a powerful way of witness in our consumer driven culture. When people say, I don't need a bigger car, I don't need a bigger house, I don't need more and best I can do with what I have. The middle class in this nation is disappearing. But it's disappearing largely because we want now what we can't afford and don't need. If we would learn to say yes to ourselves, the middle class would make, or excuse me, no to ourselves, the middle class would begin to rise back up again. We want to live like the Joneses on an income less than the Joneses. Whoever said the Joneses were the mark of excellence anyway? Probably, exactly. I mean, probably the paradigm for me uh, for, for, for this is Warren Buffett, who lives in the same house in Omaha, Nebraska, that he lived in when he had nothing. One of the wealthiest men in the nation, one of the wealthiest men in the world, has decided, I don't need more. This is enough. What's your enough? If you don't have one, you don't have one. That means nothing will ever be. Live beneath your means. Practice giving and generosity regardless of how much you make. Let giving lead receiving. And as wealth, uh, it, 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 it's fascinating. Poor people 
give more than wealthy people on a per capita basis. If you don't give when you have little, you won't give when you have a lot. It's just that simple. So practice. Let, let giving lead. I don't know how we're going to close out this. This is not a great altar call thing. So, oh well. I'm just going to I'm just going to stop flying the plane. It'll crash and bounce, and and then it'll we'll go home. Here's the other thing. As your wealth increases, start to pray for ways to be creative. It doesn't have to come through the garden. You, I, I, I'm going to invite you to give responsibly and generously to the needs of the ministries here. I'm just, I can't even imagine the things that we could do in terms of alleviating situations and circumstances in Long Beach if our community, our community, would be as generous with God as he has been with us. I can't, I can't imagine. However, I am not also thinking that we all need to give everything through the local church. I think some of you can start businesses that will provide employment. I think some of you can do microloans that will give people a sewing machine and help them come out of poverty in this country or in another country. Do you know that a $50 sewing machine in some parts of the world will be transformed, if not just to a woman, but to her entire family? It just turns things around. 50 bucks. $25 a month sponsors a kid, gives him an education, gets him out of the cycle of poverty. What does it look like for you to be creative? What it looks like is not having to spend more to get a bigger house that you don't need. Or a faster car that you can't drive any faster anyway. Have you seen the traffic? <laughs> Pulled up beside a Maserata the other day in my 2000 Toyota Tacoma. I can go as fast away from this stoplight for a couple seconds as you can, and then I'll catch up with you in the traffic. Okay. Um, what would happen? What would happen if you trained yourself to live on one income if you're a two-income family? I have a couple who, uh, can you guys hang in with me for a couple more minutes? Sorry. Um, I'm not really sorry. I'm, anyway. um, it says back there, don't lie, and so now here. No. Um, uh, I had a couple a few years ago that I was walking with who, after uh, four, five, six years of marriage, discovered they couldn't have any children. Uh, and uh, they worked really, really hard to, uh, to make a hard, hard decision. Rather than spending the tens and hundreds of thousands of dollars, which I'm not faulting anybody for doing, but in, yeah, thanks. Those those are the kid rescuers. So, apologize. I'll get done as quickly as I can. But anyway, rather than do that, they decided that the two of them who really loved their jobs wanted to maintain both of them employed, and so they decided to to live on one income, uh, two income family living on one income. And then with the other income, they are supporting two missionary families. That's creative. They don't need a bigger house. They don't need better vacations. They don't need more, more, more. They have chosen less so they can do more. Um, there were all, all kinds, kinds, of, kinds of ways of, of doing that. Uh, save something no matter how little. 
get into the habit of living on less than you make. And there are all kinds of rules of this. But be, be a, this is another piece that I, I feel very strongly about, especially uh, having survived the plagues of Black Friday. Be a responsible and informed consumer, customer, not just a consumer. The race for the cheapest, the best for the cheapest, inevitably results in products produced at the cost of human dignity. So whenever I stand in line, don't, don't, don't misunderstand. I get the leaders, I get the lost leaders, I get all of that. But sooner or later, friends, we are going to pay the price for insisting on the best for the less. We're going to pay the price for that. And in fact, many third world countries right now are doing exactly that. So know where your stuff comes from. Know what it costs in terms of human capital to produce it. This is part of what it means to care for the poor. Then establish a reasonable lifestyle and stick with it, regardless of how much more you can afford. Uh, John Wesley is my classic example on this. He determined early on in his lifetime of ministry that he only needed this amount of money to survive for a year. And that was what he lived on for the rest of his life, this amount of money. Even though in the sales of his books and various other things, he made this amount of money. His lifestyle did not expand to match his income. Can we do that? Well, yes. Because we have the discipline of enough. We've got enough. At the end of the day, it's important, of course, that couples, if you're married, be on the same page. One of the other advantages of singleness. Because <laughs> I'll often find a husband or a wife who is all about this and, and married to someone who still is so insecure in their identity that they must have what everybody else has in order to be someone. I said that very carefully. I don't want to judge anybody. But friends, can we call it what it is? And deal with it in Jesus' name, because it is crippling us. We buy things that we don't need don't want and won't use to impress people we don't like. Push back against the culture of conforming. Otherwise, you're going to be running your whole life just to keep up. Be careful about climbing the corporate ladder. Make sure it's leaning against the right building. And then finally, and maybe it should have led, invite Jesus into all your money decisions because it's not yours anyway. Every conversation about money needs to involve him. Every conversation about money needs to involve him. If there's a husband and wife, it's a three-way conversation. If you're a single man, single woman, it's a two-way conversation. He gets to have say, not just on the 10% you give, but on the 90% you've got left after having given. That's important. And then finally, avoid the conceit of wealth. When God blesses you, and I'm going to use that language carefully, when God blesses you, please do not assume that because you have money, you're better than somebody else. Or that you're smarter than somebody else. Or that your opinion counts for more than somebody else's. There's a superiority and an arrogance that can come with wealth that is damaging to the soul. You're no better, no worse 
just differently gifted. Be responsible and accountable for what you have. Let's pray. Oh God, I thank you for um, the chance that we've had to talk about things that matter a lot. Um, taken way more time than I should have. Um, but I, I think it was worth spending some time thinking about this stuff. And Lord, I don't know what you're speaking to us here as a community on this matter. I pray that you, O oh Lord, will, um, will say to us what we, we need to hear. Help us not to resist what you invite us into. I pray that you would challenge us, Lord, at the individual level. As we sit and say, well, when I get, then I will. Help us to start first with what's in our hands now. And I pray, oh God, that you would lead us gently into a spirit of generosity to match your own. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Garden Church Podcast. For more information about the Garden Church, visit thegardenlb.org.